0: This is the Notable Speeches Podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, an address that presents a viewpoint not often heard these days related to the U.S. Civil War, waged between North and South from 1861 to 1865. That conflict is commonly characterized as a war that pitted enlightened Northerners against benighted Southerners in a battle over whether black slaves would be free. The speaker on today's podcast says that assessment fails to take into account the actual history leading up to the conflict, as well as what was being said by leaders both in the North and in the South about what was at stake. He also argues that slavery likely would have come to an end in the Confederate States even if the South had won the war and become a separate nation from the United States. The speaker is Donald Livingston, a professor emeritus of philosophy at Atlanta's Emory University and founder of the Abbeville Institute, an organization of scholars that seeks to preserve and present what is truly valuable in the Southern tradition. This lecture by Donald Livingston, recorded at an Abbeville Institute conference in 2015, is titled The Moral Challenge of Slavery and Confederate Emancipation. It has been abridged for this podcast.
1: The movement today to remove not only Confederate flags from state, local, and federal property, but also monuments and memorials, um, is made possible by a narrative of that great conflict in the 19th century. The narrative holds that the war was about slavery. So it's this question of the moral challenge that slavery posed in the 19th century and how to remember that that we have today. In our popular history, the War of 1865 was fought by the North to abolish slavery and by the South to protect and extend it. But that narrative is as preposterous as it is popular. It's really amazing how that has stuck. In his first inaugural, Lincoln said he had no authority nor any inclination to touch slavery. In the same address, he supported the Corwin Amendment, which had just been passed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress. This amendment incredibly made it impossible ever to change the Constitution to give Congress power over slavery. No stronger protection for slavery could be imagined. Yet Southern states seceded anyway, simply because, like their colonial fathers, They wanted independence and self-government. Another fact missing from our popular history, and this is very important, is that the North was essential to the origin and perpetuation of slavery. It was foundational and continuing. Historians acknowledge that the wealth of New England and New York was built on the slave trade and on servicing slave economies in the Western Hemisphere. The Industrial Revolution in America began with textile manufacturing, as it did in Europe, and it was in New England. And New England had an insatiable demand for cotton. We forget what cotton was. One historian says, quote, Cotton was more than just a profitable crop. It was the national currency, the product most responsible for America's explosive growth in the decades before the Civil War. Northern companies financed plantations, shipped slave-produced staples abroad, insured them. Southern exports accounted for some 75% of American exports, and most of that was cotton. Throughout the antebellum period, and this is very important, most of the federal revenue came from a tax dependent on this vast southern export trade. Northerners benefited from this because they benefited from the federal government. When Lincoln was asked in a cabinet meeting, why not let the South go, which Northerners initially thought should happen, most of them, three independent testimonies say that his response was, quote, what shall we do for our revenue? Slavery was a national wrong. It was not a wrong peculiar to the South, It was a national enormity. That is so obvious, yet historians rarely ever write history from that point of view. Now, what was the morally right thing to do about slavery? Since slavery was from the first and throughout a national wrong, the morally right thing to do would be to to recognize this, first of all, and create a national program to emancipate slaves, compensate slaveholders, and integrate the African population into American society. Now, the value of slaves at this time was around $3 billion. That's a lot of money now, but that was to be counted in the trillions in today's money. So that would be an enormously expensive thing to do. But the North had no interest in emancipation, compensation, or integration throughout the entire antebellum period. There was no political party that advocated emancipation. Zero. Compensation was absolutely out of the question, of course. And so was integration. The slavery question wasn't raised even until the 1830s. There was no public discussion, really, of emancipation. Until the abolitionists did, they were a small but highly vocal group, and they demanded immediate emancipation and uncompensated emancipation. Well, how far is that going to go? First of all, it doesn't recognize northern involvement. Integration was even further removed. Northerners were strongly opposed to integration. They took firm steps to keep blacks out of their states. The Constitution of Illinois, for example, forbade the entrance of any free blacks. Those already in were not citizens of the state, could not use the courts to testify against white persons to protect what they had, and could not serve as jurors, could not vote, and their children could not attend public schools. Oregon's constitution was virtually identical to that of Illinois, and all the northern and western states, at one time or another, had very tight restrictions. The result was the free black population in the Midwest was around 1%. The Emancipation Proclamation is viewed around the world as a moral landmark event in the story of universal human emancipation. But it was no such thing. It was a military measure ordered by Lincoln as commander-in-chief because the North was losing the war on the battlefield. Lincoln said that very clearly uh, a month or so after the emancipation. A few months after it, Lincoln wrote, quote, Things had gone from bad to worse until I felt we had reached the end of our rope, that we had about played our last card and must change our tactics or lose the game. I now determined upon the adoption of the Emancipation Policy." End quote. Now, this policy did not free slaves in northern states, nor in those of the South deemed loyal to the Union. It freed slaves only in territory yet to be conquered. The idea was to encourage a slave rebellion. And this was militarily a sensible thing to do, because 90%, around 90% of the men of military age, were in the Confederate Army leaving plantations protected by only women, old men, and boys. And it was thought quite reasonably that slaves could easily overrun the plantations and join insurgent groups in wilderness areas with the support of the Union Army. And you would do the Confederacy in. But a mass slave uprising did not occur. As Professor Edward Smith, an Afro-American professor at the university, at American University observed, quote, blacks could have escaped the nearby Union lines, but few chose to do so, and instead remained at home and became the most essential element in the southern infrastructure to resisting northern invasion, End quote. Still, many slaves did leave, either voluntarily or because the plantation was abandoned, These were legally free, but they had little in the way of legal rights. And that's very important. They were not citizens of a state or of the United States. They were classed legally as contrabands, that is to say prizes of war, like machinery or land or anything else you may have conquered. Lincoln had taken no measures ahead of time to provide those likely to be freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. The result was a humanitarian disaster that is only now coming to light with the publication of James Down's recent book titled, Sick from Freedom. He points out that bewildered slaves, women, children, the aged, the infirm, wandered into Union camps, often often malnourished and sick. The Union army hastily threw up the first, what I would argue is the first modern concentration camps. And these camps uh, were not well supplied, they became overcrowded, they were fetid sources of disease, and the contrabands died in the tens of thousands. Smallpox and other epidemics broke out and raged throughout the South for years into the reconstruction era. To sum up, the North did not invade the South to free slaves. Slaves were, f- were freed as an unintended consequence of a war of conquest designed to maintain northern control of the resources of the continent. In this respect, it was a typical 19th century war of unification following the model of the French Revolution, and such as would shortly occur in Germany and Italy and later in Russia and elsewhere. When civilian casualties are counted, the war left around a million dead, if adjusted for our population, that would lead to around 10 million today. Imagine that. A war of that magnitude merely to prevent, not to free slaves, but to prevent 11 American states from forming a federation of their own, in accord with American traditions, was morally reprehensible. One can see here that there is a lot at stake and how we remember the war. This partially explains the move today pushed by major politicians of both national parties, as well as by some political leaders in the South, to eliminate from the public sphere all Confederate symbols and memorials. And what follows, I want to argue that an independent Confederacy did have the moral resources to abolish slavery in a reasonable amount of time, that the best solution to all problems confronting the Union in 1860 and especially the moral challenge of slavery, was a peaceful negotiated division into two federations. First, the South had a long emancipation tradition going back to Jefferson, St. George Tucker, John Randolph, and others. Robert E. Lee inherited that tradition. He wrote his wife in 1856, quote, In this enlightened age, there are few, I believe, but what will acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country." As of the 1830s, there were more anti-slavery societies in the South than in the North. Second, William Gilmore Sims, the greatest antebellum Southern writer and a slave owner, predicted in the 1850s that the border states of the South would abolish slavery in in 15 years. That would have been around 1875. That was his prediction. Why? Because, he said, they are turning to, quote, manufacturing that on sheer economic grounds, uh, some of the states are going to move to manufacturing and the plantation economy is going to have to be adjusted, and that will mean emancipation of some kind. Third, and this is from the judiciary, serfdom was gradually abolished in England, not by statute, but by a long series of judicial decisions, each building on the other in the common law. Likewise, there were intimations in Southern jurisprudence that pointed in the direction of gradual emancipation. In their rulings, Southern judges used Somerset's case, a classic decision in the English High Court in 1772. Uh, It held that since slavery is opposed to natural law, it could be supported only by positive law. Now, the courts of the slave states of Louisiana and Missouri, for example, regularly used Somerset's case. And this this was used in other southern uh, courts. And they ruled in favor of freedom against slaveholders who had taken their slaves into states which had no statute legalizing slavery. Slaves also had due process rights. According to southern law, the master had ownership only in the labor of the slave, not the person That was an awkward thing, but that was the law. As a person, the slave had certain rights. Among them was due process rights in a criminal case. Had the Confederate judiciary been allowed to develop in an independent South, the rights inherent in the person of the slave could have been cultivated and expanded whenever slavery collided with the rule of law. Fourth, In the 1840s, there was a movement among clerics at the highest level arguing that although slavery as such is not a sin, some forms of slavery are sinful, and that the institution should be reformed to bring it into line with Christian teaching. This included education, legalizing slave marriages, religious instruction, and the like. Uh, This movement would have gained greater traction in an independent South, free, of the 30-year-long posturing of New England abolitionists demanding immediate and uncompensated emancipation backed by terrorist threats. There's a good book on this called North Over South by Susan Mary Grant uh, that documents this long 30-year period of of New England uh, intellectuals demonizing the South. But I want to talk now about an even more forceful intimation of eventual emancipation that emerged as Southerners fought to drive back the invasion of their country, namely the proposal to emancipate slaves in return for military service. Now, the call to arms um, of slaves as soldiers came from all over the South and from all parts of the public. Some indulged the illusion that slaves would be content to fight and remain under the control of their master. But most understood that arming slaves really meant emancipation, and that that would mean a social revolution. An eloquent plea was put forth by Confederate General Thomas C. Hindman, a former Arkansas congressman, who published an open letter in Georgia, December 1863, urging the mobilization and emancipation of slaves. General Henman said, quote, Give him the chances of a white man. Put him by the side of a white southern soldier. Allow him a little modest pay. Assure him of freedom for good conduct, his state consenting. Let him feel that he defends his country as well as ours, end quote. Notice that Hinman imagines integrating black and white troops, that blacks will fight, quote, by the side of a white southern soldier. We've got to remember there was no segregation in the antebellum south. There was subordination, but there was not segregation. The churches often were integrated, uh, not so in the north, and not so in the Union Army. In November 1864, Jefferson Davis endorsed purchasing 40,000 slaves for use in military service. These will be freed and allowed to enjoy their freedom in the Confederacy after the war. The Davis administration urged state legislatures to alter their laws to free the families of slaves who served in the military. Robert E. Lee had supported gradual emancipation before the war and urged Jefferson Davis early in the war to arm slaves. In October 1864, Lee wrote Virginia Senator Andrew Hunter that slaves should be made soldiers without delay and that this should be part of a, quote, well-digested plan of gradual and general emancipation, end quote. A general emancipation would strengthen sympathy for the Confederacy and make recognition by Britain and France more likely. Such a policy, said the Richmond Enquirer, would free the Confederacy from the, quote, prejudices which slavery has thrown around it and would appear in its true colors as, quote, the cause of a people struggling for nationality and independence and the United States would stand before the world as the oppressor, denying the principles by which its own struggle for liberty was justified, end quote. Lee provided guidance for the social revolution that was to come by insisting that black units be integrated with units from the same state and from the same locality if possible, This would create a new civic bond between whites and blacks who would have the same experience of defending their regions and homes from invasion. Lee urged that special efforts be made to, quote, conciliate the goodwill of black recruits. They must, he said, quote, be made to forget as soon as possible their former condition and Strict orders should be given as to their treatment, end quote. They should be placed on the same, quote, footing of soldiers with their freedom secured. Southern leaders were conscious that they were undertaking a great social revolution. Again, the Richmond Sentinel went out of its way to impress on the public that promises made about the future legal status of those emancipated, quote, be redeemed with the most scrupulous fidelity and at all hazards, end quote. There must not be, quote, the least appearance, the slightest semblance of bad faith, end quote. In the last months of the war, the Confederate Congress authorized raising black troops. Recruiters spread throughout the Confederacy, but Lee was compelled to surrender on April 9th and the social revolution inaugurated by the Confederacy went down with its defeat. Now, this effort at Confederate emancipation forms no part at all of our popular history. When it is mentioned at all by academic historians, it is usually with a sense of impatience tinged with contempt. Too little, too late. But this misses the point. Failure to implement emancipation and the social revolution connected with it, because of military defeat, does not take away from what we have discovered about the character of southern people. Namely, that if left to themselves, they had ample moral resources to emancipate slaves in a reasonable amount of time. Behind the impatience of the academic historians is the implied question, why did it take so long to reach a national policy of emancipation? Why did not the Confederacy abolish slavery with the stroke of a pen, as did Lincoln? I've heard this many times. But there was a great difference between Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and Confederate Emancipation. Lincoln's proclamation did not free any slaves in the four slave states still in the Union, nor in certain parts of the South loyal to the Union, nor did he have a plan to care for those emancipated after freedom, which caused the humanitarian disasters we've seen. The Confederate emancipation failed on the national level because it became bottled up in the Confederate Congress, and we don't have time to go into that. That would not be the first time that salutary policies would be strangled by an obtuse Congress. We need only look at our own Congress today. But this failure does not take away from what we learn about the character of the southern people that they had ample moral and political resources to effect emancipation when the right political circumstances presented themselves. It is true a policy of emancipation did not arise until the Confederacy's existence was threatened. But that was also true of the North. Prior to the war, the North displayed no morally responsible effort at emancipation, nor was there any interest in using black troops at the beginning of the war. From the beginning of the war, Southerners believed blacks identified with their communities and could be depended upon to help in their defense. This belief necessarily produced a sense of goodwill and was expressed in the insistence by the more generous Southern leaders, such as Davis, Benjamin, Claiborne, and Lee, that black Confederate soldiers be received as social equals. To sum up, the historical record strongly suggests that slavery would have been abolished in a reasonable period of time in an independent confederacy due to moral, economic and political pressures. Among these was manufacturing, already evident in the 1850s, to the thoughtful Southerners, to thoughtful southerners such as William Gilmore Sims. To this, we should add the reform movement of leading clergymen to ameliorate slavery in accord with Christian ideals. And this would nudge it in the direction of freedom. The strong attachment by Southerners to the rule of law, which afforded due process rights to the slaves as persons, and which pointed to further reforms in the direction of emancipation by the judiciary. The willingness early and throughout the war by some Confederate leaders to arm and free slaves, a proposal that gathered support in every section and class of the South, was strong by the second year of the war and eventually gained the support of most governors, major journalists, and many high-ranking military officers and the leaders of the Davis administration. We get a glimpse of what most likely might have happened in the insistence of Lee and other Confederate leaders that newly armed and emancipated slaves should be treated in such a way as to make them forget, in Lee's words, their former condition and be accepted as free men and Confederate society. Thank
0: you. Donald Livingston, founder of the Abbeville Institute, speaking at the group's 2015 summer school event for graduate students held at Seabrook Island, South Carolina. Mr. Livingston is the editor of Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century, published in 2012 by Pelican Publishing Company. Please subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast if you haven't done so yet. Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app of your choice. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and Parlay at Notable Speeches. To offer a comment or suggestion, send an email to feedback at NotableSpeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. Thanks for listening.